Welcome to America's Heroes Group podcast with information and resources that's disseminated intentionally to empower our military population with host Vietnam veteran Cliff Kelly, co-host Iraq veteran Colonel Dr. Damon Arnold, and co-host Army National Guard veteran Sean Claiborne. And now, America's Heroes Group podcast. America's Heroes Group Roundtable Partner with Veteran Legislative Voice. Today is Saturday, November 13th, 2021. November is Military Family Appreciation and Alzheimer's Disease Awareness Month. The host is Cliff Kelly. I'm Sean Claiborne, co-host, Army National Guard veteran. Our executive producer is Glenda Smith, and our digital media producer is Ivan Ortega of Scouts Honor Productions. And we have a great show for you today. We have our partner, Ms. Stephanie Collada. She's a U.S. Army Reserve Sergeant First Class veteran and founder and creator of the Veterans Legislative Voice. It's good to hear her voice again. Stephanie? Hi. I'm really excited to be here. I'm glad you're here with us. Now, this is something we can get into for, uh, for a while. We can talk about this for a long, long time. Incarcerated veterans. That's another hot topic. Um, before we get yeah. to that, I want to let everybody know that we, they can see us on, on live on Facebook Live, and also they can see us on platforms like iHeartRadio. Just download the app and search America's Heroes Group. You can also watch us on digital TV, on Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Apple TV, and the Zondra's TV network. That's Z-O-N-D-R-A. You can get that on Roku. Now, so there is an estimated 107,000 veterans serving time in state and federal prisons. Right now, that was as of 2016, as a matter of fact, the majority, 98% of which are male. And then um, the majority of male veterans in, in each state, 56% are in federal, 53% prison served in the Army, and 53% served in the Army. Um, and also, one out of four male veterans are, is 28%. One out of four males is, 20, uh, is, a, is, a, is in prison, federal prison. And also, 21% were combat veterans. 21% of the of the people serving in prison that were that, that are military veterans that were participated in combat. So, why do we have these high numbers? And also, what can be done to look at uh, this problem? And what are the issues stemming from? Is it mostly just um, just bad choices people are making? Is it more so? Is it more psychological things that have happened to them? Maybe they're they've had some emotional things or, or scars we can't see. What is the issue? What's going on? Well, it's a combination of all things, and everybody's familiar with um, very popular issues that has happened in the military. Um, you know, m- m- military sexual violence, uh, people uh, people going homeless and having financial issues when they come out. Uh, a lot of veterans have chronic pain, and they were very hard hit. They had very hard hits back in the opioid crisis. So when um, they, you know, go through a lot of pain, the VA was very... 
uh, I guess, gracious in giving many painkillers out. But the thing is, is that then they started cutting them off. And that's when veterans started having to go from using painkillers and many of them changed to drugs like heroin Hmm. to pretty much cope with the pain. They also, many uh, veterans have also done that transition from drugs and to drugs and alcohol. And many have actually have um, marijuana charges on them um, because that has been um, a source of relief for pain, mental health issues. You know, it's a catch all for a lot of things. And the thing is, is that a lot of people believe that people that go into prison and serve time are ones that have either gone to combat or they have bad uh, conduct discharges or, um, you know, other than or or other than honorable discharges. But with the statistics, it shows that many of them had an honorable discharge Mm -hmm. or general under honorable conditions in the statistics that you said. Only a quarter or a third, less than a third, actually have served yeah. uh, overseas, I mean, for uh, for wars. So it's a little bit different from a lot of people um, on how they understand it. Another statistic is that um, male veteran state prisoners are more, or more than twice as likely as their non-veteran peers to be serving time for a violent sex crime. Mm. And that one... Is not very surprising for many of us that that actually advocate for, you know, um, military sexual violence because a lot of them do slip through the cracks through the military justice system and they get out without, you know, the uh, sex offender registration or anything on their records about a sex offense. So they'll get out of the military and more than likely than not continue their circle of crime. Hmm. And it's it's pretty frustrating and uh on that type of process. Um, the other thing that, another statistic that is um, really important to go to, you did say it's 98% are men. The thing is, is that many studies focus on the men because there are more than, more in the whole picture. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, is that women that serve time in prisons, they have a little bit more unique issues going on. A majority of them, over half, um, are victims to military sexual violence. Uh, there is a um, associate justice from California that um, is in the uh, courts of appeal in California. She opined that it is likely that 100% of the women had um, multiple trauma experiences in their military careers, so physical, uh, sexual, and, you know, war. And so one of those things is just really difficult. Um, more than a third of uh, veterans that serve in prisons were homeless. Hmm. Yeah, and so it's a collection of many things, and they are the catch-all of the worst cases of everything that we're trying to advocate for the veterans. So it's really sad to find them and and look for this. So it's up to the federal uh, prison system and the states to take care of these veterans when they're in. Because one of the things that not many people understand is that the VA will not treat nor pay uh, VA disability to veterans that are in prison. It's up to the state, local, and federal system that house these veterans. The problem is that those systems don't understand veterans' needs. So yeah. the, the thing is, this, I think is interesting is that we have this connection with going back to MST. We talked about that in a couple of segments earlier. 
So you have a situation mm-hmm. where people are suffering from military sexual trauma, and then it's a dis- uh, it's a crazy disparity between how the women are treated and what they, and what they go through, and what, how mm-hmm. a lot of the offenders, all the men that are the offenders, and what they go through. Although men do also suffer from military sexual trauma, it does happen to men, and, it's, uh, yeah. and people are finding out that it's happened more, a lot, alarmingly higher than what people realize. That is way more yeah. pervasive than people ever give credit for. Um, they're, I think yeah. they're reporting something like twenty percent, or it's less, maybe it was less than ten percent. But some people are saying it could be as high as thirty percent. Yes, I, and I then the other veterans have they've had they've had experiences on that you know that could have ended really badly if they uh, weren't able to def- defend themselves. But the thing of it is, is that so you see these guys that are committing crimes in the military, sexual tr- crimes in the military, then getting out and doing the same thing in the civilian world. But, but then you have the women yeah. that are getting discharged from the military because they were trying to report it being discharged and not getting honorable discharges and things like that and now ending up in the prison system because they have a lot of trauma from a lot of the abuse that they suffered in the military. Yes, and they often go, and it's actually pretty common for military sexual trauma victims to go homeless after they leave the military. Um, Justice Moore also, she found that the longer you stay in the military, more than likely you will not go into prison. So, the problem is is that these victims of military sexual violence are typically in their first contract. They are young, under the age of 24, and so they're going to serve the least amount of time, which will actually increase their chances in, to going into prison. Hmm. That's, yeah. that's depressing. So yeah. should a it person, a, and there's this push right now that for, for people to go back, we talked about this earlier as well, to go back and try to, if they have claims for MST, to try to see if they can refile claims because now the military is taking a slightly different stance and being a little bit more open to look at some of the, the claims that were denied for MST. So mm-hmm. people that are can now get uh, put them in a new claim and hopefully get benefits for MST so they can get the counseling, the support, maybe get re, help get reintegrated back into society, get education benefits, um, compensation benefits, training, work training programs, things like that. Phys- uh, actual monetary compensation, those types of things, and along with medical um, uh, treatment, things like things along those lines. Do you think yes. that a person needs an attorney when they go when they file a claim or try to get a claim um, re-looked at? Is it a good idea to talk okay. to an attorney? Yes. So I'll give you a little bit about my background on VA disability because we don't talk about that so much. Um, I actually used to help a lot of veterans and also when I worked for the Army Reserve as a DOD civilian, we had a lot of veterans come out of the active duty and then come to our reserve unit to continue to serve or part, you know, and or part of their contract. Cause I was on Fort Lewis. Um, so the majority of the pe- people that we got were prior active duty. And um, so I helped many people out with their VA disability. And later after I left the army reserve um, medically retired and left as a DOD civilian, I worked for some time for a VA disability law firm. And help them out and basically work for them and help a whole lot of veterans. So the thing is, is that when a veteran files a claim, um, it's best. I do recommend to go to a VSO or a state um, vet center rep um, because majority of the VA disability lawyers only receive any compensation on a claim that had been denied first. Hmm. So they can help, but they won't be compensated. Um, and many do do pro bono work because I did a few of pro bono work for a few veterans that their mental health was so terrible they had trouble filling out the form itself. 
so I helped a few of them actually prove that. And yes, military sexual violence is one of the most difficult ones to file. Um, women are women veterans are disproportionately getting denied more for PTSD um, than men because majority of their PTSD is from military sexual violence and they never filed for it. Hmm. So it's a it's a catch twenty two for a lot of women as well. But the VA. Um, they they actually came up with a few things to help veterans on how to do this. So the most common one, of course, is, you know, reporting and getting that done. But the other one is that you can prove that there are markers in your VA disability. Um, and I use it for uh, I like to use it for PTSD as well. Uh, I mean, for other things other than just military sexual violence for stateside trauma issues, because a few veterans in the past, you know, they react to um, plane crashes back in the 80s and 70s, and those people had um, gotten PTSD for that. So markers are anything that shows a change with your mental health, and that could be a decrease of um, professional performance measures. You know, the evaluations, the annual evaluations you get. Um, going AWOL is a good example. Um, getting enrolled into the alcohol and substance program, ASAP. That's a very common one to also do because that's how a lot of people try to cope with mental health issues without going in to get mental health uh, treatment because it is a stigma. And that's one of the things that I pointed out for the prison for those that are incarcerated is that mental health was such terribly stigmatized in the past. They're terrified they're going to lose their security clearance, that they're going to be treated differently. Uh, When I first started going getting mental health treatment while while I was activated as an Army Reservist. I told everybody I was going to get dental work, um, and only my boss, my supervisor, knew where I was actually at, and thank God he did not um, treat me differently hmm. because of it. Wow. So this is the thing. So you're familiar with restricted versus non or unrestricted claims? Yes. Yes, I was for, uh, formerly a SARC, a sexual assault response coordinator. So, yes, there's restricted and unrestricted, um, and those came out after the um, 2013 uh, Congress congressional hearings that was happening in 2013 and 14. So there's two ways to file. You can file an unrestricted, which means, you know, everybody's going to be notified. Um, you, It's best to do, do that filing within the first 24 hours of the actual assault because there's DNA evidence. There's a lot of evidence that you can get to uh, build up your case. Um, and then they pretty much the MPs will know, the command will know. They're not supposed to really know your – they're supposed to know your name, but they're not supposed to do, know all the other details. Um, unrestricted, no one knows except for the medical or a chaplain or a friend because they've also have, you know, let, uh, expanded that little – confidant system and you can tell a friend and family members you can actually talk about that with unrestricted the problem is is that the friend or family members or someone else that knows as soon as it becomes public it has to be forced into unrestricted and so that can be very traumatic for the survivors as they go through that process because they can still get mental health treatment and all of the other treatments that you can get um, because many have to go get screened for STDs after an assault and get treatment for that. So a lot of times um, that trauma, when they go through from going unrestricted to unrestricted, is very difficult. Hmm. There's another great program that came out 
um, in the last couple of years, and it's um, it's the catch program. So they catch the serial offenders. So um, current people that file for um, before you go into that, before, before you move on to sorry. the catch. So go, so when you have an unrestricted uh, um, claim, an unrestricted claim means basically. It's out there. Everybody knows about it. So maybe the, your commander might know about it. Maybe the commander's the one that did it, or mm-hmm. whoever, all the people that are involved and their buddies know about it. If it's restricted, yep. it means it's basically it's just pri- everything is private. Yes, but if it's that is restri- very true. But if it's if it's restricted, is that does that mean it's still being looked into? Is it still being investigated, or is it like shelved no, or sir. tabled? Okay, so it's basically shelved or tabled. Yeah. So so at least so everybody, either everybody knows what happened, and you brought through the gauntlet of of shame and ridicule and and maybe fighting for your job or whatever and all that all that other backlash that can come from that or you keep it private but nothing that really gets done about it yes and you can't uh you can't seek any uh military protective orders while you have a uh restricted claim as well so it's actually really common for people in the chain of command or supervisors uh or just a higher ranking person to be the predator and it's also common that the predators also live in the same barracks as mm. the survivor. Wow. So those type of things can get really scary. So a lot of survivors face that um, trivial decision. And some do choose the unrestricted route because it, A, gives them um, some protections. B, they can get a PCS. Um, there has been problems uh, in the past uh, with that issue because um, there was one lady that was stationed in Korea that filed an unrestricted report on being raped by people in her um, barracks. And they never instituted a military protective order. She filed for the PCS, and they took over 80 days wow. to do it while she was still living in the same barracks as the, as the, um, the alleged offenders and um later after she pcs to fort carson she was told that they uh, that she has to come back for the trial which is actually not true and so the day before she was supposed to go she committed suicide wow and her mother is still fighting for those um for better for more changes in the military justice system to help with future uh survivors Future victims. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. We've also yeah. had a lot of cases where the woman was actually attacked or even killed by the by the offender. Once yes, the later on. Offender. Yeah. Yeah, many many see uh, actually receive reprisal um, and, and, and many threatening um, things, and it's pretty scary. Um, the FY19 uh, DOD SAPA report showed that they did a study for reprisal cases. And over 60% of those that actually um, did retaliation against the survivor when they report were in the chain of command, superior to the victim, um, and sometimes actual, you know, commander and first sergeant themselves. Wow. So going back to the the, um, the this catch um, situation, so they can catch. So we got two two things about this about this conversation when we're talking about incarcerated veterans. So we have we do have people out there that are that should be behind bars, and then we also have veterans out that are out there that maybe just, just maybe made some bad choices that aren't necessarily bad people, but just making bad choices and maybe going through a rough time psychologically or maybe um, in their uh, financial situation, which leads them to do desperate things. So how do we separate the the um, 
these two groups? How do we? Who are these these uh, veterans who are incarcerated? Are we getting? Are we? Do we have uh, more of the guys that, are, that belong there, or are there guys that are really just going through a bad time that maybe need some support, some kind of legal support to get some to get their stories well, told? That part I'm not sure. No, they're actually the veterans. Can you repeat what you say? You oh, broke up a little bit. Yes. Uh, so there is a group that does um, oral history uh, on in- on incarcerated uh, veterans. So you can get a lot of information from them. I'm I'm very new with that group, uh, Incarcerated Veterans Oral History Project. They're on Facebook. Um, the organizer of this is uh, Jason Higgins, and what he's doing is gathering all the stories and figuring, and so everybody can understand the background of those incarcerated vet- veterans on how they get there, get to that point. Hmm. And there's the CATCH program. Is that doing a good job of, of finding offenders in the military? Yes, actually it is. Um, so current people that file a report, they have the option of doing that. They're also calling past reportees, past survivors, uh, to find out whether they would like to opt into the catch program. And that's been um, a very big thing, especially when they start doing um, DNA tests and you can start seeing the connections from a lot of different uh, assaults. And you said most of this is habitual guys. These are guys that are, that are serial offenders. Typically they get caught. Yes. Once they can get away, once they can get away with the first one or just something that's, you know, not so bad. And then you, it's a it's a downward spiral from there. And so um, one of the things that while I was ASART, a sexual assault response coordinator, was that the training sessions, we try to educate people on what really is assault, how does it get there, um, what is acceptable, what's not. Because there are veterans that make terrible decisions on uh, sexual assault, and it becomes sexual assault when they didn't mean to, because a lot of times men or women, um, they get somebody drunk because they think that they're not going to accept them while they're sober. Hmm. And so so those instances, we try to really um, talk about consent. And there's a great um, little video called Consent is Tea, Tea is is Consent. And it talks about something similar, but just so um, innocent of forcing a person to drink tea. You know, what if they didn't want tea? What if they decide once they get the tea uh, that they don't want to drink it right then? Those type of instances of uh, consent is very um, easy to help uh, younger veterans to, or younger service members to understand how to approach things like that. Wow. So tell us how to, once again, how to get a hold of your group and also get information about the Veterans Legislative Voice. Yeah. So um, I have Veteran Legislative Voice on Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter, and I also have my own website, uh, VetsLegislativeVoice.org, uh, B-E-T-S. Um, I've been doing a lot of updating, and what I've been doing is studying every single bill that's in Congress right now that is related to military and veterans, and I'm highlighting a good portion of them on what could actually make some great change. And so and one more last thing, what should we be doing in the last minute or so we have you on the line? What is something that we should be doing right now in regards to incarcerated veterans? What do you, what do you, what do you your call to action to the veteran community, the civilian community? What should we be doing? We should um, force our Congress people to get to make the VA change to provide that care to incarcerated veterans. The VA, you know, as 
good and bad of, of all, everybody's uh, experiences, they're the ones that understand veterans. They need to be treating our veterans inside the, um, the system. And then also many, um, many people that is incarcerated, they don't receive VA disability payments as well. So they're going to be faced with a lot of fees and issues that happens while they're incarcerated. And they're not going to be getting that compensation that could actually help them to transition out of the system. And then also one last thing, too. Is, so what would you say to, to women who are, because we're on the topic of MST, we're talking about incarcerated veterans, what would mm-hmm. you say to women to encourage them to and to come forward to file claims about MST? Do you think it's beneficial? Um, are the benefits worth the risk or worth it the process? It depends on their on where they're at in their environment. Um, many do. I If they're concerned about the reaction to them filing, I always recommend a file restricted until they transfer to a unit and then do the unrestricted, go under un- unrestricted, which is an option for restricted people. They have the option to, later on in uh, their career, any time in their life, they can switch to unrestricted. Um, I do recommend to get in to see uh, a hospital so they can get that rape kit done as soon as the incident happens, because that is the biggest evidence for anyone's case and a lot of times survivors and victims do not go do that because they're terrified of getting caught while they're there or um that you know maybe they'll minimize the actual assault those type of things happen and that's one of the reasons that most cases are thrown out it's because there's not enough actual material evidence and everything is circumstantial Wow. And you mentioned earlier getting mm-hmm. that getting that uh, that rape kit is done. You should do that within 24 hours. Is there yes. a uh, time limit on when you can have a restricted uh, claim versus unrestricted? Or is there a time limit or a statute of limitations on when a person can step forward and say, hey, something happened to me? No, sir. They actually did a uh, Supreme Court uh, hearing last year, I believe. And they uh, state that there are zero statute of limitations for a rape that happens in the military um, in the last decade. There has been um, a lot of cases that have been coming up for um, survivors filing against their drill sergeants while they're in basic and AIT in the 80s and 90s, and they've been winning their cases because the statute limitations was thrown out. Stephanie, thanks for your time. Really appreciate you telling us all this information. We really appreciate your voice. Stephanie Collada, nice to see you again. Thank you for listening to America's Heroes Group podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss an episode. And for more details, visit americashg.org.